Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. I, I think that it's time for me to swing into the serious part, which is called Ways That Bad Things Can Be Good. I want to offer here a few remarks about the ancient theological problem called the problem of evil, which is the problem of how to reconcile the proposition that God is thoroughly good and entirely omnipotent with the apparent fact that there is evil in the world. If God were not supposed to be entirely good, or if, though indeed supposed to be entirely good, he were not supposed to be entirely powerful, then the existence of evil might not pose a challenge to the existence of God. But if God can make anything happen and prevent anything from happening, and he cannot want anything bad to happen, then how come so many bad things happen? That's the problem of evil. Now, there are lots of answers to this question in the theological tradition. Some of them are lousy, and others are just as bad. <laughs> One answer is that she who poses the problem of evil mistakenly presupposes that we should be able to understand God's ways. Instead, this first answer goes on, we should celebrate the manifold, multiplex mystery about God, including the mystery of how a person so totally terrific can appear to promote, or at least tolerate, so many awful things. Uh, I've heard this answer, this look deep into it, wow, what a mystery answer. It's sometimes invoked by priests at funerals of people who suffered particularly ghastly deaths. Priests who try to use those deaths to teach us how profoundly mysterious God's ways are. Now, a second and maybe better answer is that to expect the world not to have evil in it is to expect the world to be perfect, which is unreasonable because you mean, it means you're expecting the world itself to be God. Since only God can be perfect, he had no choice but to create an imperfect world. You could say, well, why then did he bother to create anything at all? Maybe he would have been better off not existing, you know, maybe, you know, but maybe that's like looking a gift horse in the mouth. Anyway, another answer is that evil isn't anything real anyway. This is a great answer. It's just the absence of good. It isn't anything. It's just the absence of good, so there really isn't a problem. But that's like saying that you shouldn't go to the dentist just because you have a hole in your tooth, since a hole isn't anything. You know, the dentist says, you know, open wide. Oh, you're all right. There's nothing there. You know. I mean, there's nothing there, just a hole. Uh, how come it hurts? It's only a hole, you know. Well... Another answer is that there is bound to be evil because it is a necessary consequence of God's greatest gift to human beings, namely free will. Having free will means being able to choose between good and evil. And so if there are beings around with free will, evil will sometimes happen. Oh my God, I'm shot. That madman shot me. I'm bleeding. Yeah, yeah, but he shot you with his free will. Isn't that great? You know. <laughs> So today we're going to do 
something a little bit different. I have Ron Placon on the show. I don't think Ron needs any um, introductions, except I'm going to say this. How many of you know that Ron also has a master's degree in philosophy? I'm guessing none because he's much more humble than I am, and he doesn't really talk about it. So Ron is going to come on the show and discuss philosophy with me. Welcome, Ron. Hi. Thanks for having me. 100%. Um, yeah, my master's degree is actually, it's a communication degree, but like the subfield was called rhetoric and philosophy. Okay. And, and I do never like to talk about that because it's such a, it's just such a ridiculous, like mouthful of a title that I yeah. ever, but, but I, but I do have to point out, it's not a straight up philosophy degree. Like I can't. Oh, right. But you, know. you read a lot of the same stuff that I did. Yes. So you and I first yeah. bonded over punk rock and then we bonded over philosophy. So like you do. Exactly. All right. So since we both do politics, I wanted to sort of start off talking about the classic Plato, the Republic. I think everybody at some point in their life that they've been in, at university and even high school at this point have been introduced to some basic concepts that Plato talks about. Uh, but to, just to give an overview, he's basically making a comparison about the justness of your soul to a justness of the city state. Right. And mm -hmm. in order for that to be the case, everybody has to do what their talent is. So we all have this inborn innate ability at something. And if we're just human beings, we're doing what that thing is and not trying to do something else. So, which can be slightly fascist, right? But another part of what he talks about is um, philosopher kings, right? So the yes. philosopher kings, these are the guys that make good rulers because they aren't pursuing power and they're not pursuing money. So I think this is a very leftist ideology, right? I think it's why Bernie Sanders was such a good senator it still is is because he actually cares about you know the people doing really good policy being out in the world um standing up for for principles that he believes in as opposed to pursuing money and power which is why he only took donations from you know people not corporations all that sort of thing so in your opinion i want to ask you in your opinion do you think plato is more of a fascist because of his this idea that you have to do your innate talent and everybody is inborn with this sort of biological essential talent thing, which I don't agree with necessarily. Or do you think he's a good philosopher because he argues the point of the philosopher kings? Ooh, that's uh yeah, I mean there's I don't think there's any one way to look at that because I mean I think that you know, depending on which way you slice it, the philosopher king in and of itself can be a bit fascist, depending on how you look at it. You know, you know what I mean? Like just this idea that, you know, because like the big the big conflict is right. the philosopher king versus the rhetorician, where the philosopher king essentially goes the truth with a capital T is out there and I know it. So let me control shit. Whereas the rhetorician is saying Truth may or may not be out there, but uh, I'm going to get my agenda through because I can talk nice. And yeah. and that's like that's like the conflict, like when you just strip it down to its barest essentials. So, you know, I, I think there's there's kind of two ways to look at all that. Well, the other side of it is, well, the philosopher king is is constantly pursuing truth. So they would make good rulers. And that's what he's getting at. And similarly, the uh, you know, the whole thing like your talent is you know what you pursue like that certainly you know in on some level that has a fascist tinge to it but on the yeah, other side it of it because it's hierarchical it's hierarchical apparently can get, can't get that word out because he's right. obviously saying some people are better at being farmers and others are smarter so they're better at being philosophers. right king, so right 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 
But if you apply it in a contemporary sense and kind of strip away like the the historical context, like when he was writing it, you could also kind of use that to say, well, that justifies something like a federal jobs guarantee. Like that justifies something where it's like, you know, people should pursue what they want to pursue and there's worth in what people want to do, whether you want to be a doctor or an artist or whatever, there's there's worth in that. So. I you definitely know. think there's worth in that. I don't think Plato does, though, is the problem. Right, 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 right. I mean, yeah. I, hmm. It's tricky. No, I know. Plato's tricky. It is tricky. tricky. It, it's, hard to, it, it's hard to say definitively one way or another. Because, again, I mean, he was writing at a particular time. Right. And, and so. I also I think know. in his defense, he argues that women are capable, just as capable as men are, of being any of those things. So he doesn't sort of perceive women as as less intelligent which at the time there were i mean if you look at aristotle's logic he would he would flat out say women are incapable of logic right so so he gets points for that just yeah so so i think it's like when you look at those you know like like those different factors going on and you're like well this is where he went against the grain as far as what was going on in society you know you you kind of guesstimate well if he was writing today how would he feel? Is this what he's saying or is that what he's saying? And and yeah, right, it's a right, tough right. it's a tough line to to walk because like there's, you know, the, there's kind of like compelling subpoints on both ends of it. So, I mean, it depends on how optimistic I'm feeling in a given day. You know, <laughs> on an uh, on an optimistic day, I, I would say no, if he he's writing about just um all of us pursuing right. our place in the world and that everyone has a place and that's a good thing. And uh, so it's very, uh, you know, it's very kind of uh, um, not necessarily utopia per se, but but you know, egalitarian and stuff like that. Egalitarian. But then on on on, a, on on a bad day, it's like, well, uh, now it's actually just kind of fascist, and he's saying that some people are are meant to be kept down while others are meant to be kept up, right. and you know, right. Right. No, I think so. Because then, because the part that you get into, for me at least, from a philosophical point of view, is this. Who decides what those innate abilities are? Who's the, who, who gets to be the judger of that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he would say the philosopher a, king, right? He would but, say but, the philosopher, yeah. But what but, makes the philosopher king? Right. I mean, if we really kind of let, if that's what we're using as our, as opposed to like a strict democracy where it's just mob rule, which I think is necessary, is, is a good thing. I don't think democracy as mob rule is bad. That's just my opinion. Because when you get into these other areas, it's like, well, who's to stop this other group from saying we're the philosopher for kings, not you, based on whatever their list of, of um, qualifications are, right? That's mm-hmm. a very loose thing. Yeah, well, and that's what's interesting. Like, the one thing I always remind myself whenever I'm taking anything too seriously is that, you know, basically the whole idea of the academy pretty much started off as a pyramid scheme. <laughs> you know, like, like when you like when you trace it back to like like the rhetoricians, they were like, right, we know right, how right. to speak good. And it's really useful if you know how to speak good. Right. And true. if you if you pay us, you can speak good. You, yeah, well, right? well, what else do I get if I know how to speak good? Well, you get your way, which is pretty neat. And then you can teach other people to speak good and charge them. And they can teach other people to speak good and charge them. And they can teach other people to speak. It good sounds like Congress, charge really. Them. Yeah. Right. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> that was actually the first lesson I would always give. Like when I taught community college, I would yeah. always the first day I, I would explain like just the basic concept of the philosopher king versus the rhetorician. And then I would explain like how rhetoric is the oldest academic discipline in the world. And here's actually how it started. And I would just draw it on a chalkboard. 
Right. And I'd be like, I'd be like, what does that look like to all of you? And the students would say, that's a pyramid scheme. That's a and I'm like, and I'm like, never take this stuff too seriously is my point. Never take this. Indeed. I mean, do your work, do, do your work, work or I'll fail you. But and I also think never we have to mention that seriously. the way they view justice, justness, actually, N-E-S-S, the Greek sort of uh, definition of the word is as fairness, right? So it's not like mm-hmm. the way we perceive justice in our modern um, criminal justice system at all. So they're looking at what is fair, right? That's the question. Mm-hmm. What is fair? What is just? Um, all right. So what about John Rawls? He's more of a modern philosopher that writes in this area, and he definitely has a different view of what justness is than Plato does, right? So for John Rawls, he, he takes you through this thought experiment that he calls the veil of ignorance. And basically what he's saying is if everybody was behind this veil of ignorance and you didn't know what you were, go- you were going to be in the real world, you don't know if you're going to be male, female, black, white, rich, poor, you just don't know, smart, not smart, right? What is what kind of principles of justice would you all agree on as what would be fair, right? And that's important, I think, because you don't know what your status is going to be in the real world. So that sort of gives way to a maximum principle, which means everybody agrees to the 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 most basic thing that would be acceptable to everybody if you were the lowest person on that rung, right? So so his his entire philosophy is based on changing the social starting places of, of folks. So it's egalitarian in the sense that he says everybody's born into a different social starting place. And if we really want to have justice as fairness, we have to do something to to equalize those social starting places, right? Right. So his two principles are just uh, first access to equal basic liberty, liberty, right? So everybody has access to basic liberty. And then the second one, which I think is the more important one, is that social and economic inequalities must be addressed, but they must be um, attached to all offices under equality of opportunity, Right. And they must be to the greatest benefit of the least advantaged. So this is a very egalitarian way of viewing uh, justice. What are your thoughts on John Rawls? Yeah, so John Rawls, I I should probably read more because I'm a, I'm a firsthand guy. Like I always like to just read right. the uh, the original text. But in my uh, in my academic pursuits, uh, a lot of my exposure to him was more secondhand. Whereas it, it was another scholar who was uh, using referencing. Him. Yeah, he gets referenced a lot, him. especially by the media guys. He gets referenced a lot. And, and not to say there's not value in that. Of course, there is. It's just me personally. Right. You know, that's where more of my experience comes from. So I'm a, I'm a little more foggier on him directly. But that's fair. But I, I think what's what's really interesting about all that is, you know, you see those lessons also in uh, pop culture and yeah. in yeah. our society at large right now, and we still haven't learned them. I, no. I, I mean, the most popular, and I'm sure you've seen this meme a million times. I have as well, where it's like, um, I think it's it's equality versus uh, versus equity, mm. where they have the meme where it's um, there's three uh, guys trying to see a baseball game and they're standing at a fence. And the one guy's very tall, uh, so he doesn't need any help. So he's just seeing the game. The other guy's a little shorter, and uh, so he needs a little help, but not a lot. And the other guy is really short, and he really can't see much of anything. And they're saying, okay, like if it was just equal for everybody, they would each get one box. And the tall guy has this box he doesn't need, so now he's standing on this box, and he can really see everything he didn't even need it and he's like all right and uh the shorter guy has one box so he can all right he peers out a little bit and the short guy just has one box and he's still 
staring at a fence and he's like, oh, this is a bummer. And then they're like, but equity, you know, the tall right. guy's happy and he's cheering. He doesn't need the box. The short guy has the boxes that he needs, but he only needs like two. And the shortest guy has three. And then they're all happy and they're all cheering together. And, you know, I, I think that's really what that's all about. Addressing yeah, no, I agree. Inequalities. That's great. And, um, you know, and of course, as a guy who's five foot four, I connect with that on, <laughs> on every level, let alone <laughs> metaphorically and literally, I really connect with that. I'm like, yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> yeah, but, and um, here's the important thing: the the tall guy hasn't lost anything by giving up his box, has he? Right, right. And I think that's really the guess at the crux of it. If it doesn't harm you to give something up and it helps somebody else, why shouldn't you be able to give that thing up, right? Which is why you know I get in, 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 into sort of that utilitarian argument about how a thousand dollars is meaningless to Bill Gates, right? It doesn't mean mm -hmm. anything to him. It's a thousand dollars is like half a penny or something. If even that, right, it's meaningless. Mm -hmm. But a thousand dollars to somebody that's homeless is a tremendous amount of money. It has way more value to that guy, right? Yeah, well, and you also look at it from just the goodness of a society. How does all of society win? And in this simple meme that's, you know, kind of applicable to all this, you know, we're presuming that the three gentlemen are at the very least friendly yeah. and they're watching this game so if you are tall guy and you're watching it and you know how fun is watching a game when every Your friends can't see yeah yeah and they're saying what the hell's going on what was that was that a strike what did he do did he do something did they score is it is, is the inning over and you're yeah. just like dude i'm trying uh, i'm watching here well i'm not well, that sucks for everybody involved. I would Remember think that? so. If but you're all watching it together yeah. and you're all cheering together, it is that much more fun. You can talk in between innings like, ah, oh, that, exactly. that pitch was solid. I knew he was going to do the fastball there. I'm not a baseball guy. I think that's showing, but whatever. You know, like. <laughs> no, but it so, makes yeah. sense, Ron. I mean, and here's the thing, though. The plutocrat is like taking up all the boxes. He's the tall guy in the middle. But he's mm -hmm. taking all the boxes that he can get his hands on and he's piling, piling them underneath him. And he's looking down at these other people and, and saying, too bad, it's mine. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, sort of where we're exactly. at in society right now, I think. That is where we're at. That's exactly where we're at. So, so yeah, I mean, he had, um, you know, in, in getting back to Rawls, he had all these, um, you know, pretty just um, fundamental lessons mm -hmm. that we still have not learned. And, and yeah. I'm not saying there's like a simple solution for these concepts. Of course, there isn't. There never is. But, man, you'd think we'd be a little bit further along. Right. <laughs> it seems to me that people just can't get past this idea that we are all better off if we are altruistic. Like I, So I, I don't know if you know moral naturalism, but I actually wrote a paper on moral naturalism. I should put it up on Rockfin um, because – I believe at the end of the day that most human beings are not innately selfish, but they're innately altruistic based on sort of a kinship theory. Because when you think about it, we, we are all better off at survival mechanisms if and when we group together and we pool yeah. our resources, right? I don't think that that's a crazy argument to make. And it's you even, not. Oh, I've never heard that specific term. Um, like, okay. uh, But I've heard theory similar to that and and i don't know if i've just heard it called something else or maybe it was called that i mean graduate school was a couple minutes ago for me so a lot of stuff's <laughs> a little foggy but um but uh, but i've definitely heard similar theories to that um 
And I think there's some truth in that. I don't know if I would go as far as to say we're innately like completely good. I mean, I mean, I mean, I think in, in many ways we're just tabula rasas, but <laughs> um, I think we're. I think actually, we're... I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. I, I think that we can be innately. When I say altruistic, I don't mean we're all good. I mean that we understand that by sharing our resources. Like, for example, if you did pl- uh, Prisoner's Dilemma, right? And you mm-hmm. reached the Nash, Nash equilibrium. What you discover is that you're both better off if you cooperate with each other, right? Right. That's yeah, where yeah, you yeah. both no. win. So I'm, so, but I do think, yes, you, there's bad people that even then they understand that, well, if we pool our resources, we're more likely to all be better off on a certain level. So, yeah, so moral no, naturalism isn't, isn't necessarily about morality in the sense of, um, like, I don't look at any sort of idea of, of morals in a religious sense, like sinning or not sinning or good, bad in that sense. Just altruistic in the sense, I don't know if I'm making sense right now, altruistic in the sense that, that it's not the religious definition, it's that we cooperate together and we have better outcomes. If that well, yeah, it, no, 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 that, that does make sense. And I see what you're saying. I think there's environmental factors that could like pull away from that. But oh, 100%. at the end of the day, you know, you're right because, you know, I, I mean, I think this is a, this is actually a reference to a Billy Bragg song, so you'll appreciate it. But it's like, it's like we did decide to climb out of the trees and cooperate right. with each other. So, so there is a certain inclination right. that is that is there, like that is just like straight up there. And we as humans have it. So it's like, I don't know if I would go as far. And I know you're not claiming that, but like some people claim, well, we are just inherently good. I don't think I'd go that far. I wouldn't go that but, far either. I'm but we're not, we're not inherently bad, though. Right, right. So... I think a little bit of both. There's a little bit of good and mm. bad in everybody. That's true. I mean, we are all capable. I mean, this you can go into the philosophy on this. I think we're all capable of committing murder on a certain level. I mean, anybody let me thinks- Let me tell you something, Tina. Before my <laughs> coffee, I don't know what I'm capable of, all right? Right? I don't know where the, I don't know where the philosophy is on that. I don't need it. But, but before my coffee, let me tell you. <laughs> I'm with you. I need my coffee in the morning, too. So I, I don't know. I think that those are conversations that only philosophers appreciate. Um, let's well, talk about... Because okay, it, well, before we move on, and we don't have to go down this total rabbit hole, but but when you said, like, like we're all capable of murder, from the philosophical sense, it depends on how you define murder. Well, okay, there's that because too. there's that, like, because that, then it yeah. gets tricky. Like, what do you actually define as violence? What do you actually define as murder? Because depending on your definition, I may or may not agree with that. Yeah, uh, like you know some folks I mean? will say if you're if you murder somebody in the act of war, like you're in a battlefield and it's war, is that really murder? Well, yeah, right. I would say yes, exactly. it is. But some people would say it's not. So yeah, I mean, I remember one time you'll you'll appreciate this kind of funny sidebar. I remember one time I went out to drinks with one of my professors in grad school with some of the other grad students. And we just got into this ridiculous debate about what the properties of a beach were. Like, so some of us were saying, well, it must have the property of, ha- of having sand. And I'm like, well, not necessarily. There's rocky shore beaches with no sand. Mm-hmm. I think it just needs to be water lapping up against something, whatever that something is, right? So anyway, this went on for quite a while. Well, no, I had something similar. And <laughs> the reason I thought of that, like we had this thing once where it was just like, is everybody capable of violence? And I was the only person in the class 
who said no. And, but it was because of how I laid out violence. Okay. And, and, and I'm not saying I was right or wrong, but, but I did get, I got an A on the paper because my, my teacher was like, because she let her bias known right away, like okay. where she made it. So I think every student was like, well, she says yes, we're going to say yes. But I said no, because I defined violence. I was like, look, I, I think it was, was it Hegel? I forget which philosopher. I, I think... That would make sense, actually, if it was Hegel. I think that, yeah, I think that's who it was. Don't quote for it. If there's any, like, real philosophy nerds listening to this, don't hold it against me if I'm, if I'm missing that one. This paper was written about Foucault? 10 years ago. This was, like, 10 years ago. But um, but they define violence as it's, it's just basically seeing someone with a face without a face, and that's what violence is, like, just, like, dehumanizing okay. the person. So... Going on that um, definition, if someone's trying to kill me, yeah, like they're on top of me with a knife and they're trying and I defend myself. I have no choice. I defend myself and I harm that person. Maybe I even have to kill that person because I have no choice. You know, I'm taking the thing that's like, well, that's not really violence because I had to defend myself. I actually agree with you. Um, and that would so. be that sounds very hagley to me. I also, I think just as a sidebar, <laughs> just a lot of the postmodernist stuff I, I don't agree with. And, and this is par partially because of what you're getting out right now. Like, I think they make everything way too relative. Everything's subjective. And if everything's subjective to, to that point, then there's no such thing as universal right or wrong, universal truth. Like, as, as, as small as those universal things are, they still do exist, right? At, on a certain level, we all recognize something. We recognize wrongness when we see it, right? Whatever that mm -hmm. wrongness is. I think there's something that's innately human about that. And I think that it has nothing. And I think that's universal, right? That's an objective thing that we all say, well, that's wrong. Maybe we can't always say why it's wrong, right? But maybe it's enough that we recognize it, that it's wrongness. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. And, and that, and then where... I divert from even that because again, there is no like just one clear glass that's going to be right a hundred percent of the time where I divert from a lot of that, like those modes of thinking and that type of theory is I do think that there is a line in the sand at some point between good and evil. Yes, I do too. And, and there is you. just like, sometimes it's just like, this is evil and yes. there's just no getting around. And, and, you know, like a lot of like so the, the entire discipline of psychology backs that up. Yeah. I mean, they no, even yeah, draw absolutely. the line, like the DSM draws a line in the sand, like where yeah. at, at some point there is just someone who is a manipulative evil criminal. And, you know, Calling back to what we were talking about off mic, and I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give away any spoilers, even though it's a long time ago. Um, that's a big poignant moment in the Sopranos TV show. I'm not going to yeah. say anything more, but there's a very poignant moment in that TV show, and it involves psychology. And But anyway, if you haven't watched Sopranos yet, you have to, but yeah. Yeah, it's time to rewatch that now that we're all in like quarantine, right? We've been I'm revisiting it. It's one of I'm my- I'm going to revisit it, acts. yeah. No, I think you're well, right. Well, especially like, you know- I grew up in the Northeast in an Italian American family. So, so that show in, in many ways is sort of, um, you know, kind of reminds me of home and none of the mob right. stuff, <laughs> but, but the food that they would yeah. eat and stuff like that. Um, you know, that kind of reminds me. So of, you were uh, a hitman in your previous life, Ron? In my previous life. Yeah, no, no, we, we, we had the baked ziti. That's about it. That's but, it. Uh... All right. Baked ziti is good. <laughs> I like baked ziti. Baked ziti. Um, you know, honestly, 
Interestingly enough, too, I want to mention this. Uh, Alan Sokal, who is actually, he's a physicist. He's not a philosopher. But he was the guy, if you remember, that sort of went after the postmodernists with his fake, he made this fake paper up where he took all of these, like, buzzwords that they were using. And a lot of the postmodernists would take, they would borrow from math and they would borrow from logic and they would kind of sort of abuse these terms, like nonlinear. Well, nonlinear actually means something in math. It has a, a really clear definition, but they would do this stuff, right? It really drove him nuts. So he created this sort of fake paper and he sent it to the academic uh, research publication and they published it, not realizing it was fake. And he did it to point something out. But one of the things that he um, that he said afterwards, and I think he's really right on this, was that when you make everything as subjective as these guys do, he's, he was saying the postmodernists are claiming they're the left. And he's saying, and he was saying, I don't think you're the left and you're not seeing the reasons why. What you're doing is dangerous. If I make everything subjective, you're basically handing the Nazis an argument for doing what they do, did, saying that it's subjective, it's cultural, there's no actual wrong in the world, right? And he said, if you can't understand why that's dangerous, I can't help you. But you guys need to really examine what you're doing here. So, and I sort of agree with him on that. I think he's pointing out a really fatal flaw that sort of surrounds that entire um, school of thought, right? I, I agree with that 100%. And yeah, I, I'm not familiar with that specific thing that he did. But but yeah, like based on what you're saying, I, I agree with that to 100%. Because um, something that comes to my mind too, and this is, um, you know, a, a less like... Um, kind of a less like extreme for instance but yeah. you, you see you see for instances where you know they try to like the discipline of like rhetoric will yeah. go after science and they'll go after science in the way where it's like well the way you arrange these terms you're actually not really doing anything you're just like repeating the same things yeah, over exactly over and and it's like okay there's some merit in that critique but when you guys take it a step further and you start discounting the discipline First of all, you have no business doing that. You're completely out of your lane. Right. And, and second of all, science is based on exploration. Yes. And it is based on hypothesis. And it is based on yeah. trial and error. And it is based on where eventually you get to, there's a right answer and a wrong right, answer. Right. By and the you way, get there by, by, the by way, getting false tests. Yeah, you're correct. Yeah, which is beautifully exemplified in the TV show Breaking Bad, by the yeah. way. We're going <laughs> to... I'm going to make like 65 pop culture references before this is all over. Which is and awesome. I love it. <laughs> but yeah, so so I think that, you know, you, you do have certain, for instances, where people who just really love the sound of their own voice. And I yeah. realize we're doing a podcast right now, so we're both hypocritical too. But <laughs> but like people, people who really, really love the sound of their own voice will kind of cross those lines. Yeah. And I've seen... I've seen some crazy stuff. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some crazy stuff where people will take their their communication discipline, uh, incorporating rhetoric, incorporating philosophy, and use it to kind of strike down other academic disciplines. Yeah. And it is unhealthy and yeah. it is dangerous. And I've been in a couple colloquiums where I would just be looking around and I'd be like, what the fuck <laughs> was that? How exactly. did that just happen at an institution of higher learning? Yeah. That guy is a quack. He's a yeah. grifter and he doesn't yeah. belong here. And yeah, he, some of them are grifters. He, I agree. Oh, big time. Big time. Because they'll get funding for this bullshit yeah. and they'll make up these terms. And, and I remember like. Yeah, they'll make up these terms. Yeah. I was talking to my colleague a while ago because, 
you know, we were the only people because, you know, when the head of your department is convinced, people kind of usually fall in line. That's right. And, but there's a cup. There's going to be a few people that are looking around at each other and going, going, are we being held? Are, are we yeah. prisoners right now? Are we free to leave? <laughs> Should we ask somebody? Are we free to walk out? And then looking around. And when you when you kind of catch some more of those what the fuck glances, mm -hmm. um, you, you feel a little bit less alone and, and, and your your faith in humanity is restored a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, and, and so I had that moment where it was me and a couple other faculty members, um, you know, that were that were above me. I mean, I was an MA and they're just kind of like, what the fuck is somebody cut this guy off? off oh, exactly. Shit, he's nuts. And um, and I was kind of I, I was sort of the. um. I don't want to say leader because that wouldn't be accurate, but, but I was one of the, um, I, I guess one of the vets of the MA program, so to speak, because mm -hmm. in my MA program, you know, a lot of people, they just kind of kept going, um, right from undergrad. I was a little bit older because yeah, I take me too, actually. Off. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was a couple, I was like 25 when I entered grad school. So I was like a few years older in a program where, I mean, in a lot of programs, that's actually young or common, but in my program, it was a little less atypical because typically it was like people kept going. Yeah. But, um, but I also, you know, I'd gotten published, which was atypical in the department. So I was kind of like, someone who was looked to a little bit right. and especially since like some of the people in my program they were just like kind of studying marketing and stuff and they weren't in like the the like the tract I was in right so so we were all gathered after and everyone was sort of looking like wide-eyed like what was that and I was just like that was fucking nuts <laughs> They're just, and they're like, well, doctor, I'm not gonna say that. They're like, well, doctor, so and so, and I was just like, I don't give a shit. What right. Do you think? <laughs> like, right. Oh my god. Well, you know, look, not these people aren't always right all the time. And I remember one time I was in a class that was for some whatever reason was a mix of grad students and undergrad students, uh, and I can't remember why. Anyway, but there was only a handful of grad students in this class. But the professor, I. Uh, she said something really wrong that I had to correct her on. And it was one of those moments where like, well, do I correct her? Do I let it slide? Well, if I let it slide, then all these undergrad students, they're, they're looking to her. She's the professor. They're going to think what she's saying is correct, right? And um, so I raised my hand. And, and I can't remember, shoot, who we were talking about. But it, she was saying, uh, I think it was Kant, if I remember correctly. But it was one of these philosophers that had also written quite a bit about philosophy of mathematics. And she was saying that this particular philosopher had not. So I raised my hand and I'm like, that's absolutely false. This person has written about the philosophy of math. And then I named some of the things. She got very angry with me. And after class, I got, I got a tongue lashing, right? Ooh. Oh, yeah. So, uh, and she had her eye, evil eye on me, the rest. She's the only, she's the only professor I had that didn't give me an A. Not, I'm not bragging, but in grad student, you're, you're supposed to get A's, right? So anybody that thinks like Tina's bragging, she got all A's. I'm not. Like, you have to get A's, otherwise they boot you from the program, right? Right. Yeah. So I went, but I went to the head of the department and I told him what happened. And I'm like, how am I like, should I not have done that? And he was like, no, I'm glad you did that. You did the right thing. And then he's like, then he stopped for a second. He's like, but how does she not know that? She went to Princeton. <laughs> ah, nice. And you won that one. I won that one. And I was UC Irvine. So I was like, yay, public education. 
(laughs) (laughs) But this stuff happens. And I think it's why I really appreciate what Alan Sokal did, because he was basically making the point that that if you are just going on about nothing like this, that's really bad for academia. It's really bad for making political arguments, especially if you're saying you're on the left. And, you know, this stuff needs to be called out. So... Yeah, and and I would just add to that, like, it's not that these disciplines and ideas in and of themselves are bad. Like, 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 I don't think like philosophy of math of mathematics is not a bad thing. Rhetoric of science is not a bad thing. It's when you kind of take it to this. um, Yeah, well, I mean, there's multiple schools of thought. I mean, there's this there's the folks that agree with what you're saying. They agree with what I'm saying. And then there's the (laughs) postmodernists. Anyway, uh, so I came, you know, I did, I did philosophy of science that was and political science or uh, political philosophy. That was my two areas that I did mainly um, work mm-hmm. in. And I agree with what you're saying. I had a problem with some of these folks for doing exactly what you're talking about because it's not right. We should respect the, we should respect the work of science. Science gives us so much and it's, it's not a bad thing. But some of these folks, they don't appreciate, I don't know, it's the postmodernists again that, that really went after science. But I, um, I defend science. I think, I think it's got, got the best of, of, of rational thinking, you know what I'm saying? Whether it's empirical yeah. or non-empirical forms. I mean, induction. You can go into all the different forms. And there's a place for all of that, right? Well, there's a place for all of it. And it's trying to answer different questions. Exactly. You know? It doesn't mean that any questions are more worthy than others. I don't think it's a competition. We're all right. on the same team. So it's like... There's value we bring to each other, but when you when you write the other discipline off, right, you're, you're right. just first of all you're being ignorant. That's extremely I agree. I agree. and it's just counterproductive. Like like what are you accomplishing there? You know, so you're accomplishing sounding thinking you're sounding smarter than you actually are. Really, that's what that's about. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes, that being, that's they're just exactly being pompous right. morons. They're yeah, being, wait, they're right. the poster child for Dunning Kruger, and they don't even know it. Yeah, well, well, and and they're accomplishing some decent funding if they sell it right. That's true. So That's really, true. I mean, I mean, again, and it comes back to that grifting element, and we've all seen yeah. it because it happens. Yeah, and it's um, you know, it's it's very discouraging to say the I least. There's gonna be agree. there's gonna be some well-intentioned people that are gonna study under right. these grifters. No, absolutely. I mean, like if you look at the whole entire 1972, I would say up into the early 90s, that entire uh, framework was really popular until it started getting called out more. And then it got moved into the crit lit, the crit lit, lit crit, critical literature department. And so which is probably a better spot for it. But no, it was a thing. It was definitely a thing. Um, Let's talk about Enlightenment writers for a second. Um, I know you have the same viewpoint of Adam Smith that I do. I think Adam Smith is incredibly bastardized. uh, He's definitely not a libertarian in the sense that he expounds any sort of right-wing principles. He was actually very much pro-labor. He was against state-sponsored monopolies. Uh, So there's a lot of leftist veins that run through what Adam Smith... um, so what, we, what both of us have done, you know, because, yeah, I saw your article and I reached out to you and I was like, oh, man, someone else who feels this way. We got to talk <laughs> about it. And we did on my show, Get Your News On with Ron. And uh, what we both did that I, I didn't realize was groundbreaking, but in some circles, apparently it is. Um, uh, Adam Smith wrote a book called Wealth of Nations. Right. And you and I sat down and, and read the whole thing, read the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's like that time like it's like that time in the 08 debates where they're just like 
Yeah. Congressman Kucinich, you're the only person here who voted against the Patriot Act. Why is that? And he He's goes, like, well, I read it. <laughs> I read it. I actually read it. It's like, oh, why don't you think that Adam Smith is some big libertarian conservative thinker? Well, because his book, I actually read the thing. I didn't exactly. I didn't, I didn't cherry pick a few sentences and put them on a meme uncritically and then go, see, I read the whole freaking book. Yeah, you know, and people that make these arguments about Adam Smith, the only thing they're really familiar with in regards to what he had to say is is in reference to the invisible hand. But if you read past the second, third chapter of the book, or you read his other book on morals, uh, he had a book on morals that he also talks about the invisible hand, and you realize really quickly that it's not this libertarian, like, free market hand just making, yeah. you know, that, that's not what he's talking about. He's basically saying... He was talking about a creative way to masturbate, and nobody, <laughs> nobody takes a minute. That's <laughs> not what he was talking about. You're killing me. <laughs> and seen. <no. laughs> the phrase invisible hand, everybody's learned that in high school or college. Uh, Adam Smith actually did use the term, rarely. But take a look at how he used it in Wealth of Nations, his major work. It's used once. And if you look at the context, it's an argument again against what is now called neoliberal globalization. And what he argued is this, he was concerned with England, of course. He said, suppose in England that the merchants and manufacturers invested abroad and imported from abroad. He said, well, that would be profitable for them, but would be harmful to the people of England. However, they will have enough of a commitment to their own country, to England, what's called a home bias literature, they'll have enough of a home bias so that as if by an invisible hand, they'll keep to the less profitable actions and England will be saved from the ravages of what we call neoliberal globalization. That's the one use of the term in Wealth of Nations. In his other major work, Moral Sentiments, terms also used once. And the context is this. It's, remember, England's basically an agricultural country then. He says, suppose some landlord accumulates an enormous amount of land and everybody else has to work for him. He says, well, that won't turn out too badly. And the reason is that the landlord will be motivated by his natural sympathy for other people. So he will make sure that the necessities of life and the goods available will be distributed uh, equitably to the to his uh, the people on his lands and it'll end up uh, with this, uh, an equal relatively equal and just uh, distribution of wealth as if by an invisible hand now, that's his other use of the term uh, just compare that with what you're taught in school or what you read in the newspapers so so basically what he's saying the invisible hand is doing is this. If there's a wealthy landowner and he has all the land, he's it's not going to matter because the wealthy landowner is going to care enough about everybody else in the society that he's going to make sure that everybody else has something and is taken care of, etc. Does this sound like Anne Rand to you? Right. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, he was also, you know, and and again, we talked about this on my show. He was yeah. he also called for very high wages for yes. people. Called for a call a small gap between the landowner and the right. worker and the uh, company owner and the worker. I mean, he called for all that stuff. He did. And you everyone know, loves to forget that part. Exactly. And you know, like the folks that want to say he's the father of capitalism, I also have a problem with that because he's he is an Enlightenment era writer, right? He wasn't capitalism wasn't a thing when Adam Smith was around. That's a 19th century concept. So he was arguing against the mercantilism that was going on. And I think the other important part of Adam Smith's philosophy is that he measures wealth in terms of labor, not in terms of gold. And right. I think it's really easy to see why that's important if you're making the case that everybody's entitled to their fair share of production, right? Well, and he also, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but I recall too, like he, he also kind of measured wealth in terms of the quality of a society. Yeah. Oh, well, so, that definitely yeah. relates back. I think, so, well, yeah. yes, he's saying the argument against, he sort of makes this argument that there will be a predisposition to to trade and only to, against like this idea of global trade, right? That, that you have a predisposition to your home country, to supporting mm. local business. I don't know that that's true or not, but he does make an argument for that in the book. And I think... <sighs> I just, you know, I really appreciate a lot of what he had to say. And I think that in terms of perfect liberty, he discusses that, that there's only really free markets in terms of perfect liberty, and that's unattainable. I think his arguments against the uh, state-sponsored monopolies are important because now what we're talking about here is the government itself sponsoring a monopoly, which we see now. I mean, the Department of Justice isn't going after any sort of monopoly in this country, I mean, look at the look at our, our uh, broadband right now. It's it's literally a cartel where every they've divided up the map and everybody has their yeah. section of the map and there's no competition, right? That's a state sponsored yep. monopoly. The regulatory yep. capture at the FCC is enabling that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a corporate. I mean, it's it's a state sponsored corporate monopoly. It's a state approved corporate monopoly that they're yeah. they're just letting these companies form organized duopolies. I mean, it, it really is. Um, our cable companies just operate the same way like a mob would. 100%. Yeah. So, and we have no choice, right? We have to pay them whatever they tell us to pay because there's no other options. I have I have one option here, Spectrum, and they're terrible mm -hmm. and expensive. That's why I'm a city internet guy. We're, big, yeah, oh, for broadband, municipal broadband. Yeah, I support that. I wish it, we need that. I think it's ridiculous that we don't have that. But now, you know, we have seen these situations where a lot of these companies are getting local bills uh, put on where they're sponsoring, paying their bot politicians to put these bills on where we can't have municipal can't broadband. It. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. That's so true. fucked up. All right. So media theorists, theorists, media theorists. I can't get that out. Chomsky. Um, so yeah. this is an area I would imagine that you spent a lot of time in with your yes. degree. Yeah, and it was it was Chomsky, McLuhan, Gitlin, uh, McChesney. Yeah, yeah. Randy who was McCann your favorite? Oh, uh, who was my favorite? That's tough. Um, you know, I mean, Chomsky's up there just because uh, he, you know, kind of opened so many doors to me even before grad school. You know, yeah. I read Chomsky. You know, when was, I read was his message about college. manufactured consent well received in the media department? I'm curious about that. It depended on the scholar you were talking to. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it depended on who in the department you were talking to. Right. Okay. I mean, I mean, Chomsky was a dirty word amidst some people, and uh, and a very celebrated word amidst others. Same okay. with, um, you know, I mean, I 
was a big Saul Alinsky guy too, which, you know, I had. To okay. So for, I'm not as familiar with his stuff. Can you walk us through a little bit of, of what you like about him and what he had to say? He wrote rules for radicals. Okay. So he kind of broke down, you know, just social movements mm-hmm. and the media and the idea of revolution. And I, I mean, all that stuff is in that book. I mean, that book is something that I, I highly I can't recommend that book enough. I mean, usually when I'm when I'm on like any given podcast and they're right. like, recommend a book. It's usually one of is the it? first ones. Okay. Like you got to read Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. Um, so he kind of made that framework. And, you know, whenever I would be talking about the media or talking about whatever else, um, you know, something that he said was very poignant and important to that discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually leaned on him a lot in that violence paper that I told you about too. Oh, okay. Um, I forget how specifically, because again, it's almost a decade old, but, you know, but I do recall that. Um, So yeah, I leaned on him a lot. Um, I leaned on Bob McChesney a lot because he's, he's more contemporary. So he's writing about just the problem of the media from a United States standpoint, like he studies the different structures. Um, So I probably reference him the most because he really breaks down like why a corporate owned media is very destructive yeah why it's completely counterproductive why uh other systems are better than ours though they're far from perfect and you know like when you look at a lot of like the studies around press freedom and stuff like that um all of his theories are supported by actual you know anecdotal evidence saying that well the united states as far as press freedom goes, they're about here. Other countries that go about it differently are, are way higher up. And, um, you know, and, and he, he dives into it through a historical lens where he talks about the type of media system we used to have in this country, which right. I think had we kept on that notion, we could have had maybe the greatest media system in the world. Because I, I think yeah. it could be argued at, at one point we did. I mean, there, there was a time in this country yeah. Where, you know, an average town had 10 different newspapers. Right. And this, this is, of course, pre-internet. So it's not like, oh, they had, they had that many coupon books, huh? No, yeah. newspapers. <laughs> that was how everyone got their information. This is so long time ago. And, um, you know, and they would be sponsored by different schools of thought and different yeah. people. So, so it's like socialists would have a newspaper. Right. Federalists would have a newspaper. And, and people would kind of like... Uh, engage in discussion about issues and, and try to make decisions and be informed. And, right. and, and I think that's a right on thing. And it was supplemented by the postal service. They right. just made sure. So you were part of the media, regardless of your financial power and something that a lot of people fail to realize is that the term freedom of the press applied in the United States didn't just refer to, the freedom to pursue information, the freedom right. of a journalist to, you know, go into an area and cover what's going on. That is part of it. Yes. But we're taught that that's the only thing that was intended by freedom of the press. It wasn't, that was right. part of it, but it also referred to accessibility to being the media. Right. And what it meant was no matter how much financial power you have, if you're distributing a newspaper, you're going to get subsidized so that your newspaper is no more important than whatever else. So there would be no difference than, you know, like as far as distribution went, there would be no difference in what what you and I are doing and 
CNN right. or Fox News. Or MSNBC that's, or we, something, yeah. We'd be right next to each other. And that's the media structure we used to have in this country. Of course, right. technology was vastly different, so that was a possibility. But, you know, we could have kept up with those principles. And yeah, had we, done we overturned that, the fairness doctrine. I think that was a huge mistake. That was a huge mistake. And, and just the idea of what freedom of the press really means. I mean, we could have kept those principles. And I don't know exactly what our media structure would look like today, but I can guarantee it would not be three corporate owned entities, uh, you know, like just passing off PR, yeah. you know, just PR for corporations as news. Uh, we would not have that. There's right. no way. We would have something much different. And we would have oversight. We'd probably have something similar to what Norway has. Um, yeah. So, but we don't. <laughs> no, and because of it, America's worse off for it. I mean, most most Americans don't realize how limited the scope is of our media, and they're not getting enough information to make informed decisions with. So, I mean, you could have this conversation that, that they should maybe take it upon themselves to go out and search for this information, but that's really difficult when you're working, you know, yeah. 80 hours a week just trying to, you know, keep your head about, above water. And I think all of this is by design. I think it's uh, kind of where we're at with the platonomy. Well, and a lot of people too, like they don't, you know, it doesn't dawn on a lot of people that it's like, well, there's actually something tragically wrong with the way this is set up and how an, an entity like CNN and MSNBC and Fox News could just claim there's some news organizations when, when they report to nobody, they, you know, I mean, a lot of the stuff we do is illegal in other countries. Like yeah. our, our, the media, as we know, it wouldn't exist in Norway. It'd be illegal. Right. Um, and and that's not because they're quote unquote against freedom of the press. It's quite the opposite. Right. They just have transparency rules for the betterment right. of consumers. They have rules that it's like you can't have advertising on news and information because that creates a conflict of interest. Right. Obviously, they're right because what do you see on our cable news? You see big pharma. You yeah. see oil and gas. I, I mean, that's right. just the most glaring thing. Like, why do you think oil and gas companies? advertise on cable news do you think there's a lot of people in this country walking around going my car just stopped working and i don't know what to do about yeah. it i've heard there's this thing called gasoline and if i put it in my car it will go vroom <laughs> again have you done research on this everyone knows right. they have to put gas in their car why do you see these entities advertising on cable news? Well, because they're buying favorable coverage. That's right. They're buying the fact that you're not going to talk about what's going on in Florida. Or they're not going to talk about buying, climate change. I mean, the media has done a terrible job discussing climate change in this country. It's ridiculous. And that is by design. Absolutely it's not because it is. It's not because people don't want to hear about it. Yeah. It's not because of any of that. It's by design. That's right. It's to please their shareholders and their advertisers and their owners. That's so. Right. You know, when I would study those histories and those structures, you know, I mean, my big thesis in graduate school was just like, can we have, uh, you know, a, a democratic experiment with the media structure that we have? And my short answer was, no, we can't. Our media structure lends itself to a fascist regime, not yeah, a, not I any agree. democracy. And, you know, Noam Chomsky said that years ago. Yeah. No, he did. He was right on that. He's been right all along on all of this stuff. Our news media is no longer performing a public service. They're doing the bidding of the corporations. So this is, it's, I think, actually, it's one of the biggest problems we face in our democracy because I think a free press, I think adequate information, I think news as a public service, I think, I think this is really a pillar 
that is necessary for democracy because you can't expect your electoral uh, politics to function properly if people don't have yeah. access to information, right? To make really good decisions. Yeah, I mean, the analogy I made, one of my favorite books is a, a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. Ah, yeah, yeah. And, and he just talks about the idea of learning um, and what it means to learn and how he grew up in poverty. And he, he pointed out the very, you know, kind of obvious thing where it's like when you're hungry, you can't learn really because right. you're just so hungry. And that's something that, you know, everybody has experienced on a very small scale. Right. You know, like, like everybody has been like, oh man, I'm just, it's like 20 minutes to lunch and I'm just, ah, oh, man, I gotta, I'm still working on this thing though. And I can't clock out till noon or, oh, I, I'm a student in school and I'm just yeah. so hungry right now. I, I can't absorb this can't math lesson. concentrate. Yeah. I skip breakfast, whatever. We all know that. Well, other people, uh, know that on a large scale they know what it's like to be chronically hungry and and, and that's very sad and, and completely preventable in the world we live in and it's really sad that it's not but so he wrote about that and he wrote about how well i was i was perpetually hungry for so much of my life and then when i wasn't anymore when i when i was in a better place and i, I was able to eat um you know this thirst for learning was just so uh i could never quench it because i was just so excited to be able to do it and, you know, I, I kind of made the analogy where it's like, you know, we're so, you know, people make it out like Americans are apathetic and Americans yeah. don't want to be civically engaged. And it's like, well, in reality, when it comes to actual news and information, we are so starved as a society and a lot of people don't even realize it. They don't even realize people from other countries, they observe that right away. I, yeah. one of my wife's friends, she's Canadian. And, you know, she pays attention to the world around her, but she's not like a, like one of those news junkies. She's not someone that, that like dives in uh, head and toe every day, you know, but she pays attention. She's an average informed person and, you know, very intelligent, whatever. And she made the observation. She's like, so you guys just don't do news. Like that's just not yeah, a we thing. we don't. She's right. In the United and she's right. Any person from a different country would, would observe that and they have i mean you talk to someone from a different country mm -hmm. who observes our newton they're just like yeah well, you guys so you guys just don't do it here like that's just not a yeah. thing <laughs> i mean, I mean there, there was that there was that famous viral clip clip from russell brand yeah where he was just sitting there on an msnbc thing and he's like this is you're for real he's like, i'm the comedian you guys are serious about this though you guys are for real yeah. And, the, and but they didn't understand the depth of what he was saying, but he's like, this is, and then he just goes, wow, America, you're going to be fine. This is your news. This is your news. You're going to be just fine. And, you know, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, getting back into that analogy, it's like, we're so starved for relevant contemporary yeah. information that should you actually satisfy that hunger on a wide scale? Because again, this isn't to say there's not great journalism going on in the US. There is. You just got to dig pretty hard. You got to dig pretty hard for it because so, it doesn't have, we don't, we, we don't have the same access to the airwaves that Fox News and MSNBC yeah. have because all of that's funded by massive amounts of corporate money. We can't financially compete on that level, right? And we, but we shouldn't mm -hmm. have to, you're right. There should be, there was a time when that wasn't the case, but this is where we are. We've overturned all of these uh, laws that sort of contained the newsertainment is what I call it. And, and that's yeah, gone yeah, now, accurate. you know? And here yeah. we are. I, I don't think America's better off for it. I think we're much worse off.
Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's like, that's always like my counter argument was like, no, I don't, I don't think we're an apathetic society. I, I just think like we are so information deprived yeah. that should you actually open that floodgate in, in a, in a constructive and thorough way, um, you know, our society would really transform for the better. So. Yeah, no, I agree. I, is We have to get everybody to wake up to get woke, so to speak, because that's what it is, is having that information turned on and you see it and you're like, oh my God, what the hell was I thinking before? How did I not see this, right? Once you see yeah. it and you're you're clear about it, it's so obvious, right? And there's no turning that off once it happens. I mean, you know, look at the whole Ed Schultz thing with the Bernie Sanders campaign when he was announcing his uh, first run for yeah. presidency in 2016. There was more oversight and more direction given to me on content at MSNBC than there ever has been here at RT. And I think that it's very sad that that story is not getting out. I think it's uh, many times I was told what to lead with on MSNBC Many times I was told what I was not going to do, and I've got a story that had I not been involved in it, I would have never believed it. Uh, and Phil Griffin, who I consider a friend to this day, was was a watchdog, far more than anything I am exposed to here at RT America. Did he tell you what to say? Did he tell you an angle to take? Often. In fact... When Bernie Sanders was announcing that he was going to be a candidate for the nomination of the Democratic Party in Burlington, Vermont, I was the only cable host between Fox, MSNBC, and CNN that was there live to cover it. Now, there were live cameras there, but we had coordinated with the Sanders campaign that at 5 o'clock he was going to make his announcement, and we were going to cover this on The Ed Show. I go to Bernie Sanders' house that afternoon and interview in the backyard, about a 15-minute interview. The grandkids are running around. It's a big day for the Sanders family. He's going to announce that he's running for president. We're going to carry it live later on in the day, and we're going to run this one-on-one tape with Bernie. 3,000 people are there on Lake Champagne. It's five minutes to air, and I get a phone call from Phil Griffin. You're not covering this. I said, Phil. Bernie Sanders is announcing he's running for president. He's going to be a president. I don't care. You're not covering this. And it got rather contentious. And why, I, I, why, though? I don't, well, uh, now you're asking me for opinion. I'm giving you fact right now about what happened. Mm-hmm. And other people who were there with me will attest to the fact and back me up that this is what happened. We were told that we had to cover something down in Texas that was totally meaningless, uh, and another press conference in Baltimore, which was in, already had been in the news for a few days. We're covering Bernie Sanders live. We're coordinated with his campaign. And I'm told five minutes before, you're not covering Bernie Sanders. Now, let me give you the opinion. I think the Clintons were connected to Andy Lack, connected at the hip, I think that they didn't want anybody in their prime time or any, anywhere in their lineup supporting Bernie Sanders. I think that they were in the tank for Hillary Clinton, and I think it was managed, and 45 days later I was out at MSNBC. That, to me, that story that he told in regards to what MSNBC did about 
he went there to Bernie Sanders' house. He had spent the day there. He had a whole news crew. They were, they were going to cover that night on the show his live announcement that he was running for president. This is newsworthy. But then his boss called him, Phil Griffin called him, and said, no, you're not doing it. Yeah. Well, I mean, every day there are so many, for instances, where, you know, I mean, especially right now, you know, if you want to bring it contemporarily, what's going on with Tara Reid? Yeah, there's another example. The way, this should be... the, way the corporate media is yeah. covering it, which, which I mean, they're disgusting. covering it as little as they possibly can, first of all. Yeah. And second of all, I mean, they are just using these just language tricks. I know, it's to terrible. deliberately deceive people. And that's not an embellishment. That is what they are doing. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I'll get your news on with Ron. Like, I would show stuff in real time. I'm like, look at this. Like, they're just, these are, this is mass deception on purpose it's mass hypocrisy too because most of this is coming from the democratic party and apparently Mm. me too only applies to women if if they're not coming out against democratic men i mean apparently there's like a double standard here and it's gonna blow up in their face because tara reed's story like is probably one of the most corroborated credible yeah stories of sexual assault i've ever heard i mean it's far more um you can like corroborate with the interns and how they were no longer working under her. Like you can, it's been like vetted through. And nobody so, asked about that. Wapu and New York Times. No, they, they didn't, didn't ask, ask about it. You know question. who did was uh, The Hill. Uh, yeah, The Hill asked. Yeah. The Hill asked. Katie Helper asked. They asked, but New York Times, Washington Post. No, Pope, I mean, the, the, the piece that Goldberg did was so grotesque. When I read that, I was like, I am so flabbergasted by the was way that, you're framing this York, entire thing. Was that the New York Times one? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, I, I gotta say, I, I did at least get a chuckle out of it. I mean, there was that one sentence that was so bad, they had to take it out where it was just like, it was just like, there's been no other reports of misconduct by Biden. Well, yeah, except, for, except other, for, wait, except, except for, for the times things. that he's touched, felt, or inappropriately sniffed the hair of young, yeah, it was like, are you, it's kidding me with this like it was i have never you know i've never drank beer except for last right. night when we had a beer <laughs> except for every and other then, night of uh, when i've had a, a glass I, of beer right but last time i saw johnny we had a beer together right and then uh, i've actually i've been drinking beer since i was like 15 but but, other but than i don't that, really I've, drink beer yeah i've never had a beer i don't have one right now i mean Jesus. i know but no. that's pretty much how that was framed and then the other thing that she did that i thought was pretty grotesque was she, she was implying that Tara had filed a false police report when really the framing should have been this. If you file a false police report, that's a felony offense if you knowingly do that. So the fact that she did that kind of sort of supports the idea that she's telling the truth because people don't generally walk into the police station knowing that they could get charged with a felony offense and make shit up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so many just, you know, atrocities. but they framed it this way, like, oh, she's a bad girl. She's, you know, going to be in trouble now because she filed a false police report. Like the entire piece was so grotesque. But this, well, is, what saw, we're deal- this yeah. is what we're dealing with, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we could give a ton of other, for instance. Exactly. And- we can go. This could be like a five hour program, really. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, but I wanted to I wanted to tie things up with cynicism, because I think that's also an area that you are um sort of more knowledgeable than I am. Uh, who okay. is your favorite there, Nietzsche or someone else? No, Diogenes is my favorite. Diogenes? Um, Wait, we're going yeah. way back to, to Plato again? Okay, talk yeah, to me about that. We're going, we're going back. So <laughs> Diogenes was, uh, I have made the claim before that I, w- I would say in some ways, Diogenes is the first known comedian in the world. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, I mean, he was doing his thing in 5 BC. He, he lived was, like a beggar, yes? He's the one that he was... Did. He did, which, yeah, which okay. is very comedian-esque, first of all. And, yeah. uh, you know, he was a minimalist. And uh, But as a result, I mean, he's inspired everything from anarchy to Christianity and a lot of stuff in between. I mean, he was very anti-materialistic. He yeah. was totally against that. And, you know, the cynic philosophy um and and i think they actually said a kinnick back then I'm not, I'm not sure but 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 like the cynic philosophy was was just based on this idea that you know like men are flawed that the hierarchy in the academy was flawed um you know he questioned a lot of the commonly held norms he was a prankster i mean he went in um i think it was plato defined man as a featherless biped yeah. Uh, so he he showed up to the academy and he plucked a chicken, and like so he showed up with this featherless chicken and he was like, "Hey everybody, I found Plato's man!" And like threw the chicken at him, and um, and, I have and not he, heard that story. He, there's a lot of stories yeah, about him. Yeah, there's a lot of stories about him in a lot of the old drawings um, where they show him in the academy. People are not standing close to him, and that's because during his time there was the first coronavirus yes. they were, no i'm just kidding no i'm just kidding they, i was like there's social distancing <laughs> there's social di no but but uh, yeah that's not the case but what is the case is that people weren't standing close to him because he, he presumably smelled really bad because he was because again he didn't, he didn't bathe um and he only liked to eat onions so oh. He was a peculiar guy, yeah. and but his books are great, and there aren't a ton of them because he, he most of them were destroyed. No, or he didn't like writing. Oh, he did like write. Oh, he did okay. not like writing. He thought, and you know, it turns out, you know, to his credit, he is right. I mean, the people who were against writing, and he was one of them, they were worried, like, well, this is going to damage our memory if we mm -hmm. write, and they are correct. I mean, with every technology, you have to have this battle of uh convenience versus um or, or just like does the tool help more than it hurts because it does right, take something right, right, away right. from our intellectual ca capabilities the calculator made our hand math skills not as strong right you know like like that's true now of course the pros outweighs the cons having these you know devices that can do these these uh, equations and whatnot so quick has enriched our lives you know same with writing same with you know but there is yeah. that cost benefit analysis i mean that's the reality i mean i dude ever since um you know writing today on the internet where you just have spell check in real time and you have right. the thesaurus in real time i can't spell as good as i could like 10 no, years ago i mean you could even have that like plato discussion about virtue and function right yeah so yeah he's my favorite and um a lot of his philosophy is just, um, I mean, it's one of those things you have to read because a, a popular misconception is that like cynicism is just always like doom and gloom, counterproductive. Uh, in reality, that wasn't the case. In reality, it's like the values were just different than what the status quo called for. He really valued dialogue. He valued uh, the story. He valued uh, direct action. In many ways, he was kind of an activist. And in many ways, he was kind of like a prankster. And he would get messages across through these uses, which kind of made him in many ways a satirist before there was such a thing. I mean, he, I mean, 
he was jerking off in public once and and they yelled at him like they're like hey don't jerk off in public yeah. that we, we it's the we, invisible hand again <laughs> it's the invisible hand again and and again and, and i'm not bringing this up to <laughs> i'm not saying that i that i endorse that action by him by the way like i'm not i'm not condoning that Ryan, behavior Ryan, you, i'm never gonna let that one go just so you know <laughs> but so no, you know. no here's what happened he was jerking off in public and uh and you know which i i don't condone i'm not louis ck but but he was jerking off in public <laughs> And <laughs> he was jerking off in public and, you know, the, the powers that be were like, hey, don't jerk off in public. And he said something along the lines of, you know, wouldn't we live in a better world if I could rub my stomach and relieve hunger? <laughs> so, so he was like making this greater statement against consumerism. Right. And so, yeah. So he's he's a very interesting philosopher. And if you want to read up on him, it's actually not uh, there's not a ton there. There's more like a lot of secondhand right, tales, uh, yeah. interpretations he makes an of him. He appears in Plato. He does. Well, he was the Socrates, so- Socrates gone mad. That's right. That was how they described him. Diogenes yep. Socrates gone mad. Because he was a little bit like Socrates in some ways, but he just totally deviated in other ways. He took it to the next level. He took it to the next level big time. <laughs> and, you know, but it's like the people that followed him, like, like they... They were big fans. I mean, they just right. sort of lived off the grid. I mean, I mean, there, there's a certain, you know, when you look at like things that I really care about, like 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 I love punk rock music, and yeah. I'm, you know, my my, my 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 politics are on the left, and, you know, I mean, he kind of checks all of those boxes. He was right. sort of like the first guy to really. I mean, he was like the first anti-authoritarian. He questioned the legitimacy of everything, um, and kind of formed a lot of great ideas because of it, and. You know, just getting back to cynicism as a whole, you know, when people hear that word, they just think like what you hear, think of in the common vernacular around cynicism, like, oh, you're a cynic, you're doom and gloom, you're this, you're that, you're always always finding the dark cloud and the silver lining. In reality, cynicism, you know, when traced to its roots, has a counterproductive and a productive side. The counterproductive side is exactly that, where it's just unrelenting. Right. But the productive side is what's what's commonly referred to as constructive cynicism. And that involves just kind of having a realistic grasp on what's going on around you and prevents um, unrealistic expectations. And that's not to say don't dream or don't think big, but that's to say, you know, greet every situation uh, with the appropriate uh, amount of expectation and warrant and prioritize accordingly. So it's actually a very constructive thing to do. And people forget about that part. Of right. hundred percent. No, I, it makes sense to me. I have, I have a healthy respect for that. Um, so let me ask you this run. Where do people go to, su- to subscribe to all of your stuff? Give us a little promo on where they can find you. Uh, romplacone.com. That's uh, the home of all things romplacone. And then you can find my show at youtube.com slash romplacone, where we scre- we stream, uh, get your news on with Ron every Monday through Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. And I'm doing more streams because we're in quarantine. So I also do right. a bunch of random streams, have random guests and interviews and stuff. But youtube.com slash romplacone. And you can find me on Twitter. That's my uh, my favorite social media vehicle of choice. Um, Twitter is just at romplacone. So Excellent. Pretty much, pretty much romplacone. I just use my name. It's just, simple. Yeah. You're easy. Yeah. Romplacone. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Ron. It's been fun. Thanks for having me.
Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th.